Welcome back to our life group on parenting. We're going to be looking at page two, if you have your handout on the back side. It says, Roman numeral two, when parenting includes two or more. We are just going to be starting that today. There are more points than what you see on the handout today. We'll continue uh, the lessons in the future, adding more points and more pages. But there are two main, main thoughts I want to cover this morning. I'm hoping to get through both of them. I don't know with time if we'll be able to do that. But the first main thought is to know your opponents. When parenting includes two or more, because let's be honest, very few parents are parenting on their own. Even if they're a single mom or a single dad, they're not parenting on their own. They are including grandparents, aunts, uncles. They're including uh, even teachers. They're including other people in their child's life to assist them in directing, correcting, training, even parenting children. Look, as far as I'm concerned, my children, when they join a sports team, I am partnering with their coach to parent my child. If it's done right, that coach is helping to mold their character. And so there are obviously going to be various levels of impact on the life of your child. And there are, there are some people who are in your life and in your child's life, and you might say that in a sense they're assisting you in parenting, but maybe in the smallest sense of the word. There's not a whole lot of assistance going on there. They're basically just instructing your child on, on the how-tos of life, how to do this, how to do that, how to kick a ball, how to make a basket, how to, you know, teamwork, things like this. I get that. But we cannot deny that in most of the, at least in the, in the 21st century American United States culture, most children have more adults parenting them than just their parents on a deeper level than, than the shallow end. And it is the parents' responsibility to make sure that these people who are assisting you in parenting your children are doing right by your children. I have known a lot of parents who have adult children and are perplexed at why their adult children are not serving God. And the parents may and have said things like, we loved God, we went to church, we were faithful to God, we, we made the right choices, we did the right things, our children saw God in us as best as we could reflect God. I mean, we, you know, we weren't living lives of hypocrisy. What we preached and taught, we lived. So how is it that our children churned out running from God? Well, first of all, I want to mention, you can speak truth every day. You can live truth every day. It does not guarantee your child making the same choices. We know the story of the prodigal son. I've mentioned it before. And that child had a fantastic father in, in that parable. The father was an illustration of God himself. And, and that child still ran from God. And the older one had issues with envy and jealousy and pride. So a, a great parent doesn't guarantee a great child. A godly parent doesn't guarantee a godly child. Having said that, there are other factors involved in the lives of our children than just us as parents. And unfortunately, we as parents aren't taking those factors in. So I have the opportunity to teach algebra. I'm a math teacher at Mid-State Christian Academy. And a student who doesn't understand factors, and factors are going to be uh, various things involved in a term where a, a string of numbers and variables, which is letters, if they're missing 
part of the problem, let's say it's 4 times 3 plus 8, and they get, they get rid of the, the times 3 and they just say 4 plus 8, they're going to say, oh, the answer is 12. No, it's 4 times 3, 12 plus 8, which is 20. The answer is 20. If you're missing one of those terms, if you're missing a factor, you're going to get the answer wrong. And I feel like one of the biggest problems with parents is not hypocrisy. That's out there. I don't think that's the biggest problem. I don't think a lot of kids are running from God because their parents are hypocrites. Going to church, raising their hands, singing on Sunday morning, and then living in utter rebellious sin the rest of the week. No. What I think, in my experience, what I've seen in the lives of kids is not the hypocrisy of the parents. It is the influence of others aside from the parents. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. When parenting includes two or more. Sometimes we as parents embrace that influence, bring it into the home for no other reason than that we're related to them. So it's a brother or sister, my brother, my sister, you know, you parents, your brother or sister. You bring them into the home because they're flesh and blood. And so you don't reject family. You don't ignore family. You, you don't turn family away. So you bring family into your home and there's a reason probably why you're bringing your family to the home. They've made a mess of their lives. They're staying in your basement. They're staying in your in-law apartment. They're staying in the trailer outside your house. They come to your house every day for dinner because they can't afford a meal of their own. I, I'm not saying we don't have sympathy and we don't assist our family, but here is my caution to you. When that assistance and compassion results in their direct influence on your children, on our family, there's danger there's a reason why their life is messed up. They've made a lot of bad choices because for probably they, they aren't living in truth, right? They're living in lies and deception. They're living in sin. And so their life is, is living in self-destruction. You are essentially opening up your doors and saying, now come and bring that into our home. You cannot deny the fact your children will be influenced. You could tell that, that relative, that brother, sister, mom, dad, grandparent, you can say, I'm the parent of this home. Do not direct or instruct my child. They may even follow that, which I doubt, but they may. You're still going to have the issue of direct influence by just the way they talk and what they do and say around the children. The, the unfortunate truth is Children often don't see what adults see when it comes to bad choices. They just see the fun. They, they, they see the smiles. They see the coolness of this adult in the home, possibly. And, oh, this, you know, this adult has a motorcycle. This adult uh, is a cool person. They, they tell jokes. They have so much fun. They don't recognize all the other danger surrounded. And so they, you might say, uh, swallow whole the philosophy of this dangerous individual, and only too late do they realize that philosophy included a lot of, of issues. We as parents should see that, and it is our job as parents to protect the child from that, not the child's job to protect themselves from that. That's why they're children. So our first main point is know your opponents. You know, when I first was writing this, I wrote know your enemy, and I decided that's probably not the best word to use, know your opponents. Because I can have a family member who's related. I love them. They're not my enemy, but we are opponents. They, they, are, they have a different goal. They have a different direction. They have a different master than I do. They're playing for a different team than I am. We're opponents, but we're not enemies. On the court, as a basketball coach, the teams we play against are our opponents, not our enemies. 
Now, are there enemies of God and are, are there the enemies of us? Yes. The problem with the word enemies, I felt like it, it was too specific. And there's a lot of people who are opponents but not enemies, and, and we need to recognize that. So know your opponents. So let's turn to Amos chapter 3. Amos chapter 3. This is going to be in the Old Testament. If you find the book of Daniel, go a couple of books to the right, and you will find Amos. Daniel's a much larger book, easier to find. You'll find Daniel and then Hosea, and then uh, you'll get to Joel, and after Joel you'll find Amos. So Amos chapter 3 and verse 3. Now before these, this verse 3, God is talking to the Israelites. And God, in speaking to the Israelites through the prophet, is saying in verse 3, Can two walk together except they be re- agreed? So this is God telling the Israelites, you and I are not walking down the same path. How can we walk together if we don't agree where we're going? God says, I want to go this direction. You want to go that direction. And it's not my responsibility as God to agree with you. It is your responsibility to agree with God. So God says, I'm not changing my path. I'm not going to divert from paths of righteousness and truth Uh, to follow you to make you feel good. God says you need to choose to follow me to be good, to do good, to be in the good. But we're not going to walk together if we don't agree on truth, if we don't agree on where we're going. So this is God, again, speaking to the Israelites, and I think this is a great definition of an opponent. An opponent, I believe, is going to be someone essentially who uh, fights against God, specifically God's will for your family, not going the direction of God, going the different direction. They are not fighting for God's will. They are fighting against God's will. They do not agree with God. They disagree with God. They are not walking with God. They are walking from God. Those are opponents you just came in, I have a handout in the back chair if you want it. Those are opponents. We're talking about knowing your opponents. Why would you knowingly, willingly, purposefully bring opponents of God into the family, into the home, into the partnership of training children? You, at some level, can't Protect your child from all opponents. I get that. At at a base level, there will be opponents of God in your child's life. I understand that. How much authority will you give them over your child? That's the concern I have. How much impact will you allow them to have over your child? That's the concern that I have. And you may not have that concern, but I'm telling you, adults who look at their adult children and wonder where they've gone wrong... This, is, this might be it right here. It's not that the parents were living lives of hypocrisy. It's not that the parents were making bad choices. The parents made a singular bad choice, and that is letting opponents into their family to co-parent, you might say, at some level, whether it's at a school or on a team, whether it's literally in your home. Opponents who are fighting against God have impact on your children that you have allowed How can two walk together unless they be agreed? And if they're not agreed and they're not walking together, then one will be forced to either follow the other or they will walk away from each other. When we as parents force our children 
into a situation where they cannot walk away. You put them on a team, and I'm not saying all teams are bad. I'm not saying all coaches are bad. I'm not saying never let your kid play sports. I do not believe that. I think sports are great. But if, if you're going to put them on a team, know the coach. Know, know who's going to be over that child. And if that coach is swearing and, and makes their views very obvious, moral views and religious views, and it's not about sports, it's, it's about a lot of different things than sports. If, if you are putting them under that person, then you have placed them under a, an outspoken opponent who will impact your child in a negative way. Same with, with classes in school. It's the same with babysitters. It's the same with family. I've known families who love God, love the truth, do not believe that the LGBTQ movement is biblical or moral. They have a family member who follows that movement, and they let that family member live in their home. I've known families like that. And then they're shocked when their children don't share their belief system regarding LGBTQ movement. How, why are you shocked about that? You let someone in your home because they're blood relative. I get it. But you let them in their home. Now they've impacted the child. And you thought, well, I thought my impact would be stronger than their impact. You can't know that. And uh, you've made the decision to allow an opponent to impact your child. You can't determine who's going to win that game. You can't know that. When you brought the opponent into your child's life, you can only hope for the best. You can't know the best. The best choice is to eliminate opponents from impacting your children. That's the best choice. Then you are more likely to be the one to impact your child. And when you have people fighting for God, with God, walking with God, in God's will, impacting your child with you, your child is more likely to follow God themselves. That's just how it works. It's a numbers game. The more positive, godly impact on your child, the more likely your child will follow God. The less positive, godly impact, and the more ungodly, negative impact, the more likely your child will run from God. So, anyone is an opponent who fights against God or God's will for your family. Now consider, are there people you have let into your family, daily life or otherwise, into your child's life who are fighting against God? Then you are letting opponents impact your children. There are real-world consequences for that. There are long-term, possibly even eternal consequences if your child doesn't get saved because of that kind of impact. Okay, number two. Know your opponents. Number two, don't be one, right? That's fairly obvious. Don't be an opponent of God. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Uh, it's bad enough when you let opponents into the home. It's really bad when you are one as the parent, fighting against God, turning your back on God. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good, acceptable, perfect will of God. Be in the will of God. Fight for God. Walk with God. Know God. Do not be an opponent and then raise a child hoping to push them to God. It doesn't work that way. Okay, number three, don't marry one. Don't marry an opponent of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 tells us to not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. That that is more than just marriage. That would be partnering together with on any really deep level of relationship, which goes back to what I started this morning with, that too many of us have partnered unequally yoked together with opponents of God. Well, I'm not married to one. Well, praise the Lord. I'm glad for that. That is a very good first step. 
But there are other people we're partnering with outside of marriage. Marriage is just the deepest level of partnership. Definitely don't marry an opponent, but don't yoke yourself together with any opponents of God to raise children. How can they walk together if they're not agreed? Uh, a, a yoke together, of course, is referring to two beasts of burden, most specifically probably oxen. And if, if one ox is going to the right and one ox is going to the left, that farmer is going to have a difficult time plowing the field. There's going to be lines all over the place. It will not be what it should. So if you are yoking together with people going a different direction, the lines, the spiritual lines, the impact in the lives of the innocent, the children in your life, will be all over the place. They'll not be the straight and narrow path. They'll be crooked back and forth. And eventually one of those oxen will give up, eventually. So here's the question. If you yoke yourself together with the opponents of God, who's going to give up first? In spite of the impact the child has on their life before one of them gives up, because uh, there will be impact and the, the wavy lines, at some point someone's going to give up, and you don't know it won't be you. I will tell you this about the world, about the opponents of God. They have a plan and they are willing to fight for that plan. I see a lot of more tenacity in the world's desire to win than I do see in Christians. I see a lot more energy. They're a lot louder for sure. And they're really good at lying. The world will lie. And they won't give up. They'll just lie more, fight harder, and yell louder. The Christian doesn't lie. And the Christian gets tired. And the Christian never really fought hard to begin with, in my opinion, many of them. So who's going to give up more? Look, if I was a betting man, I would say if you had a Christian partnering with an unbeliever, and I was, if I was going to bet on which one to give up, I'd say the Christian probably. The Christian's probably going to give up before the world does, and that child will then have the sole impact of the world the Christian will have given up. The parent will have given up. Parents with multiple children will often experience that with their teenage child. They'll give up on the teenage child and say, well, at least I got the younger one, the the eight-year-old, the five-year-old, the three-year-old, they'll start back over with the younger child only to experience the same patterns. That eight-year-old becomes 14, and they give up on the 14 and go back to the three who's now nine and, and start over. And they keep losing the children <laughs> at teenagers because they keep giving up because the impact of the world that they themselves have yoked together with, the parents have embraced, defeated them. They're defeated by opponents that they brought into their own life, their own home. Look, we are in a fight. There's no need to create fights unnecessarily. There's no need to create a conflict that God didn't require of you. Why would you bring spiritual conflict into your home that you didn't have to? Why would you yoke together with someone to partner together with someone to parent together with someone at any level who is opposed to God? Why would you do that when it's creating a conflict, a fight? Why would you create that? There's enough of it out there already. I am very purposeful as a parent on the people that I allow into my children's life. They're not in a bubble. There will be kids and adults that they will know of and they will have uh, conversations with that are opponents of God. I'm not going to protect them from all of that. But I will most definitely not yoke myself together with someone, blood relative or not, to co-parent in some level with my child because I like them or because they're a nice person. Or because that's their job. No, I don't care about your job. My job is to determine who impacts my children. Because as I began with, 
parenting almost always includes two or more, even for single parents, because you're going to have to bring other people into your life to assist you in raising your child. Who are these people you're bringing into your life? Number four, we've been talking about this. Don't place your children under the instruction care of your opponents. That's kind of what I've been saying throughout the whole morning. But Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 6. This is a verse I keep referring to, and I will continue referring to it because it's often taken out of context. And I believe the context of Proverbs is a lot deeper than what we're willing to accept. So, Proverbs 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. When he is old, he will not depart from it. You are training your child with every choice that you make. You are training your child with every person you allow into your child's life. You do not train up your child in good ways towards God just because you go to church. Don't, it, it boggles the mind how many parents think Proverbs 22.6 is fulfilled because we went to church, because they went to Christian school even. No. There is so much more involved in training up our children than just going to church once a week, than just attending a Christian school even. So much more involved. The people impacting our children are training our children. Who are you yoked together with? If they're opponents of God, you are training up your child in negative ways, and there is a high possibility that is the way they will not depart from when they get older. We have essentially trained them to run from God by placing them under the training of people who are running from God. And then number five. When your children become the opponent, strive to win them back. When your children become the opponent, now we're talking younger children. It's pretty hard to strive to win back an adult child at that point. It's kind of them and God. (laughs) But a young child, don't give up on them. God's will is that child's success. That is what you're fighting for. Don't give up so easily. Children will make mistakes. You made mistakes. I made mistakes. Proverbs 19, 18, the one fighting for our children, the strongest, should be the parent. Should be those that God has placed over the child in the natural order. A, a parent. Proverbs nineteen eighteen. Chasten thy son while there is hope, and let not thy soul spare for his crying. While there is hope, even the book of Proverbs is stating that at some point, hope will be lost for your child. That doesn't mean that God can't do a number in that child's life. It doesn't mean that God can't bring that child back around to success. But human hope, our hope, will be lost. Our efforts will be gone. Anything we hope to do will be over. The child is an adult, 18, 19, 28, 38. Our hope is gone. Our hope is now only in a God and a miracle of God. But when they're children, our hope is much stronger. We have a lot more influence over children than we do over adults. While there is still hope, fight for your child. Chasten your child. That means correct strongly. It actually implies even physical chastening, physical correction, right? Not abuse, discipline. Do not let your soul spare for their crying. When your child becomes the opponent, they will manipulate your emotions. They'll use guilt. 
They'll use love. They'll use anger. They'll use a variety of emotional tools to trick you and deceive you into leaving them alone, to letting them make and continue to make self-destructive choices. Otherwise, we wouldn't need to chasten them. They're obviously self-destructing, or chastening wouldn't be necessary. And they will cry. They will yell. They will scream. They will give you the silent treatment. They will talk bad about you. They will talk bad to you. Whatever they can do to get you to leave them alone. Why? They're now the opponent. They're opposing God. They're opposing truth. You're not. They're, not, they're no longer fighting with you. They're fighting against you. Do not lose that fight while there's still hope. Do not live the rest of your adult life in your 30s, 40s, and 50s regretting you didn't fight harder when your child was still young. Regretting that you gave up so easily because your child cried. Because your child was angry. Regretting that you let your child live their self-destructive lives because you, you felt it was wrong to, to trap them. <laughs> no, their, their sin is trapping them. You're trying to free them with truth. Do not let your child lie to you and deceive you about what's going on. Chasten your child. Win them back to God. And you do so through correction, redirection, discipline, most importantly, speaking to love, speaking truth in love. All right, so know your opponents. Letter B, our second main point, and we'll be done this morning after this main point here. Know your friends. I'd like to turn to 1 Corinthians 15. We're, we're, not, we're only going to look at one verse for this second main poise, point, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 33. And then I've got some thoughts to go under this one main point. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 33. Be not deceived. Don't be naive. Don't be so easily tricked. Don't believe the lie. What lie? Evil communication corrupts good manners. The lie that you can have any kind of friend and it won't affect you. The lie that your child can have anyone in their life and it won't impact them. No, don't believe that lie. Do not be deceived. Evil communication. That's interaction. That's interpersonal relationship. That word communication is not referring to evil speaking. It's referring to more, I guess you might say, the evil speaking of others. It's referring to the, the relationships that we have and how character is communicated from one to the other. Evil people communicate evil things. What is evil? Evil is to run from God, an opponent. Do not be deceived. If your friends are opponents of God, corruption is almost guaranteed to take place. If your child's friends are opponents of God, corruption is very likely. Don't be deceived. All right, types of friends. I'm going to talk about these three types of friends here. I believe, and this is my own personal opinion, I'm not going to turn to Scripture for this one. It's just how I see things. Shallow friendships, deep friendships, and lasting friendships. Now, each of the following friendships will contain the previous one. For example, shallow friendships include mutual kindness, but that's it. Nothing else. Mutual kindness. Um, 
Mutual kindness would be just you're nice to each other, you respect each other, you're kind to each other, you don't talk smack about each other, you don't gossip about each other. That could be business relationships, that could be coworkers, that could be children um, in your child's class, classmates. Those are just, you might say, um, shallow friendships. We might call them uh, acquaintances, right? But, you know, oh, yeah, I'm friends with them. Sure, you're friends with them, you know, son, daughter. Yeah, you're friends with them, but, you know, you never go to their house. They never come here. You guys are just nice to each other. Those are good friendships to have. And as Christians, we should be mutually kind to everyone. So, you know, we should be friendly to everyone. So a a Christian should have uh, a plethora of shallow friendships, but not only shallow friendships. A Christian can't survive off of just mutual kindness alone. That's when discouragement sets in. That's when we start wondering, you know, is is anyone really my friend at all? True friendships, you know. We struggle with that if all we have are shallow friendships. All right, deep friendships would include mutual goals. Now, I didn't put it here because it's not really following our lesson. I would say a deep friendship would also need to start a growing trust, right? Trust needs to be at the deep level of friendship. But I'm talking more about kind of how this looks with the opponents of God versus friends of God. So that's the route I'm going here. So a deep friendship would include other things than mutual goals, again, trust being one of them, but it definitely needs to include mutual goals, going the same direction. How can you be a deep friend if every time you have a conversation, you're on opposite sides of the belief system, politically, morally, religiously? Um, you You can't agree on anything, right? You can be kind to each other, but it's not gonna be a deep friendship. A deep friendship requires, at least on some level, mutual goals of things that are important to both of you. And, and by the way, that's a deep marriage. You know, a, a shallow marriage is just mutual respect, mutual kindness. Uh, you, you don't beat each other up. You don't yell and scream at each other. But it's not a deep marriage. You know, a deep marriage requires for, for the husband and wife to be going in the same direction. I don't mean the same goals as far as, uh, uh, you know, a job is concerned, a career is concerned, but the same goals regarding your family, the same spiritual goals, the same emotional goals. You know, a lot of people find themselves in marriage counseling because this is not happening in their marriage. They do not have the same goals. Um, The husband's goals are success and control over their life in the sense of, you know, nothing could ever happen that would shake what I've created here, the, the, the sad truth is, there's, there's no way you can set up your life outside of God that it can't be broken, right? God talks about that. You can, you can build the strongest house. If it's built on sand, it's going to fall apart. Uh, and the wife's goals could be where, uh, where I just want um, the home to be happy. I want everyone to be happy and get along. And, and the siblings, you know, the children play and smile and have a great time together. That's my goal. And so there, there's not even the same goals, and they're not fighting for the same thing. And so they're fighting against each other, not for each other. Look, you can actually have a happy marriage. You could even have a peaceful marriage. If both of you are running from God, at least you're doing it together. I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm just saying that can happen. Like if a husband and wife, unsaved, ungodly, unchurched, if they've both got the same goals, whatever that might be, against God, they're going to have a more successful marriage than two Christians fighting against each other, and in some way maybe including God to some degree in their marriage, but they're fighting against each other, the unsaved family will have a happier marriage than the saved because of a common goal, a common opponent. And then I think that the lasting friendships, those that that really stay the course, are mutual sacrifices. Again, marriage the same thing. 
And also, obviously, there are other things included here. I'm just kind of giving you the, the main thought because of the context we're looking at this. There are other things that would be included in a lasting friendship or a lasting marriage. This is, but this is one of the higher ones. Mutual sacrifice. You're not living for me. I'm living for you. Right? I've made that decision. I will live for you. I will sacrifice for you. And then the other friend says, I'm going to do the same. Those are friendships that don't die easily. Those are friendships that overcome hardships, that overcome disappointment. Those are friendships that overcome hurt. Because if we're human, we will hurt our friends, and our friends will hurt us. But when there's mutual sacrifice, we overcome that hurt and go deeper together. In marriage, we'll hurt each other. We'll make choices that hurt each other. But when there's mutual sacrifice, I, I know that my wife would do anything for me, and she knows I would do anything for her. It doesn't mean we don't hurt each other. But that hurt doesn't hurt as much because of the mutual sacrifice we have proven for each other over the years. We overcome our hurts really fast, my wife and I. I can only think of right now at the top of my head one time in our marriage where we are hurt longer than a day. I'm not saying it hasn't happened. I just it, I don't remember it. So it, had, it hadn't happened enough where it's like, you know, traumatized me. But there was one time where I was hurt by my wife, and I was hurt for days. It was a pretty severe hurt. We got over it eventually, and we were kind to each other through it. I was just very hurt, and it took some time to get over it. But that is not the definition of our marriage. Why? Because we sacrifice for each other. It's not because I'm a perfect guy. It's not because Amy's a perfect woman. That is not the case. A deep, solid, successful marriage doesn't consist of two perfect people. That's not plausible. It consists of two sacrificing people who have also accomplished the deep friendship of mutual goals and who have also accomplished the basic friendship level of mutual kindness. So a lasting friendship will include all three. There will be mutual kindness and respect, right? There will be, include mutual goals, and I included trust as well. And now there will be mutual sacrifice. That's when you're really, you found someone that will be your friend. You can move opposite sides of the country. You're going to call each other. You're going to talk to each other. You're going to spend time together. At some point, you know, once every three years, whatever, you're going to go on vacation together. You're going to do things because you're not going to let this person out of your life. You will not have many of these people in your life. These will be the rare ones. You can have a lot of the shallow. I mean, almost everyone in our life should be shallow. We should be kind to almost everyone, right? I mean, to everyone. Whether they're kind back will determine really how that goes. Uh, as far as the deep friendships, you can, have, you can have many of those. You can only have a few of the lasting. When they move from the city, they're still your friends. When they leave the church, they're still your friends. Only a few of those. And they may not even be family. Maybe someone you're not related to. So we're talking about know your friends. So number two, not all our family are friends, especially lasting, deep, right? Not all our family have mutual goals with us. Not all of our family have mutual sacrifice with us. In fact, in my experience, my family, uh, it's mutual kindness, and that's it. (laughs) For a lot of my family, close and distant, it's only mutual kindness. It is a shallow friendship with my family, my blood relatives. But true friends become family. Those that you get to the deep friendship with, definitely the lasting friendship, those are ones who God almost gives you to replace family. All right, doesn't it tell us that a brother uh, is born for, for adversity? That is true, but then we're told that, that is close friends, that when they're there for you, 
they are closer than a brother because your brother is far away, can't be there for you, but the friends who are almost replace that brother, become your brother, become your sister. The book of Proverbs speaks of this, how our friends become our family because they are near when we need them. Number three, it is not enough that we have positive friendships. If we want to successfully parent our children, know your opponents and stop surrounding your children with opponents of God. Stop placing your children under opponents of God. And stop befriending yourself opponents of God. You want to raise children successfully? Know your opponents. Keep them at distance. And then bring friends close in. And know your friends. Know who your friends are. Know what it takes to have true friends and be one of them. And these who have common goals with you, at least the deep friendship level, right? Common goals running to God, on God's path, in God's way, under God's truth. These are friends. These are the people you place over your children. These are the people you bring into the home to assist raising your children. Just because they're a blood relative doesn't mean they're good for your children. Just because they're not family doesn't mean they're not good for your children. Good for your children are friends of God. I don't care if I'm related to them or not. These are the people I want over my children, friends of God. And friends with God are the people I want my children to hang out with as friends. You have every right and every responsibility to involve yourself in the friendship choices of your children. And if you don't believe that, you've been deceived probably by your children. You are called to raise and train your children. That includes the kind of friends that they have. And I'll tell you this. Your teenager, if you don't have one yet when they get there, is likely to be more impacted by their friends than by you. And if it is you versus their friends, you're probably going to lose. So the best choice you have is to eliminate all friends, all friendships, and the opportunities for those who are opponents of God. That's my suggestion to you. I know that's a hard choice to make. I know that's a little awkward to do, to make decisions that eliminate friendships for your children. How is that even done? How do you eliminate friendships? Well, there's a lot of practical ways, and it's going to look different for every family. I could think of a few off the top of my head, and that would be to um, limit whose house my child goes to. It's hard to limit who they talk to at school, as a parent, I would limit what schools they go to. Personally, I have done that. I mean, I've gone as far as I'm the principal of the school my kids go to to really be involved. I know not everyone can do that, right? But you can at least limit the school your child goes to so that, that the friends that are there aren't surrounded by opponents of God. But definitely limit whose house they go to. You can limit who they speak to on the phone. You can, you can do that. That's really hard once you've given them a phone, once you've opened up that, that door. It's really hard to shut that door again. But there are ways to do it. It's just, here's what my experience. There are hard choices that most parents don't want to make. Why don't these parents want to make these hard choices? Because it makes them look like the bad guy. And the parents are afraid. If I'm the bad guy, my children will run from me. Look, if your children are friends with bad guys, it's too late. Especially if they're teenagers. The deed's already done. They're already running from God. Otherwise, they wouldn't be hanging out with these friends. 
win them back. And you win them back by snatching them from the claws of the enemy, from the opponents. You can't win them back and leave them in the enemy camp. You can't win them back and allow them to be surrounded by the opponents of God. You've probably already become the enemy to some level. Hard choices most parents don't want to make, and that is why they do not get involved in the friendship choices of their children. Make the hard choices for your child because your child obviously is not able to do that themselves. And then number four, and we're done. The impact of your friends will be greater than the impact of your opponents. The greatest danger is when God's opponents become your friends, or specifically your child's friend. Do opponents impact us? Yes, they can make us mad. They can, they can cause us to get upset, to get sad. Opponents can traumatize us. We can walk away from it, though, and because they're opponents, they don't walk with us. You know, we leave them behind. Friends, you walk away. Friends follow you. And so the amount of exposure to friends is often higher than our exposure to opponents who we walk away from. And so the true impact isn't the opponents of God who surround your children. That is there. I did say it's true, and you got to watch out for that. The biggest impact, though, is when your child now befriends the opponents of God. That's when you're really in trouble as a parent. You want to know how bad it is spiritually in your home? Look at your friends of your children. If they are opponents of God, it's really, really bad. The people your child look up to and respect, opponents of God, it's really, really bad. Stop lying to yourself. Stop telling yourself it's better than it is. It's not. It's bad. If your child has embraced as a friend the enemy and opponent of God, it's bad. It's time to eliminate those friendships because friendships have more impact on our children, especially when they're older, than we do. So make sure, to the best of your ability, that your personal friends, for your sake, and the close, deep, lasting friendships of your children are friends of God. Let's pray.